Hibbins in the backfield. Hibbins in the end zone. Touchdown, Thunder. But Jake he Hibbins. It. He spiked it, and that means the extra point is going to be from 15 yards back. That was really bad. Wow. Good snap. Good hold. Plenty of distance. No good That's again. good again. Missed it again. Unbelievable. That was pretty good. He gets it up. Wow. No good. He missed it again. He pushed it right. It's hard. It's hard. It's really hard. You can beat one thing. He's you can beat like that. It's really hard. Football fans, it's now time for the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Here are your hosts, Pat Coleman and Keith McMillan. It's the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast, your twice-weekly show about the largest division of college football. We welcome you to podcast number 266, the one with the final four. It's the podcast for December 9th, 2019. Yeah, we had the spike, the flag, the miss. And then the other miss, all of that, you heard that, and then you heard uh, Mike Swider's postgame comments there in the open just a moment ago. A thrilling week of quarterfinals it was. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. I'm Pat Coleman, the executive editor of D3Football.com. I'm Keith McMillan, longtime co-host, former player, and the one of us who was able to make a drive to a game this weekend. I suppose, Pat, you could have driven from the Minneapolis area to the Chicago area, but even if you didn't have to run the show from home this time around, you could have picked the wrong game and missed that all-time great finish. I'm pretty sure I wouldn't have picked the wrong game, but as for me, I watched the end of that Wheaton-St. John's game in a coffee shop and narrated it to my family who could not believe what I just saw. I don't believe what I just saw! Even I stay home sometimes. Hey, I watched that ending in an empty post-game interview room at Salisbury, and I almost got my car locked in an empty stadium. I just didn't want to move from the place where the Wi-Fi was working perfectly while that game at Wheaton was ending. And we could afford to send Keith to a game or maybe put me in a car sometimes. Thanks to sponsors on the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. And this edition of the podcast is sponsored by Gotta Have It, FanFoams.com. Or Gotta Have It is where you find your... 3D licensed fan foams of a bunch of schools across the country, including a half dozen schools in NCAA Division III. We still got one of them left alive, uh, the University of Wisconsin, Whitewater Warhawks. I might bring that fan foam to Whitewater this weekend. So um, you know, maybe I'll uh, sell it to somebody. I don't know. The uh, This is something, of course, that we have talked about all season being ideal for the tailgate, and I think I will probably just bring this one to it. That's a good idea. No team with a fan foam has ever lost a stag bowl. Is that true? That's not true. No team with a fan foam on site has ever not made it to the stag bowl. I, Can I do that? And look, it's, we've we've been a fan of the product since um, before they signed on. And now that, that um, we've seen it in action and, and for the six teams who have them, you know, and the, the rest of you who should, it is a... Um, a durable product. It's one that you can take to and from the game, and it's something that gives you just that real official, almost professional team feel for something that's D3. So so that's why I'm a big fan. If uh, Army, Navy, and Air Force have them, you in Division Three should also. You need to go to gottahabitfanfoams.com. Scroll down to where you find, uh, see what we can do for your school, and uh, get, get, get licensed, get hooked up, get on this because that is something you need to do for division three thanks to gotta have it for sponsoring the d3football.com around the nation podcast
Pat, could you imagine getting all excited about a four-team playoff that didn't have three rounds preceding it? We've got two teams playing for the chance to go to their first Stag Bowl, two traditional powers, meeting for a chance to get back for the first time in a while. And we don't have the two purple powers that have faced off in the past two championships and won the past four. Most importantly, we had games to lead up to our final four. And while they weren't all great games, each game featured great performances in a matchup of top 10 teams. And we got one ending for the ages. What a tournament this has been for memorable finishes. And now it's up to Muhlenberg versus North Central and St. John's versus Whitewater over the next three weeks to finish off this tournament. Yeah, that four-team playoff would probably include just one of the four teams we have here in the national semifinals, if that. If we'd started today with just four teams, uh, we would have just one of these final four. So I wouldn't trade what we have had this season in the past three weeks for anything that they have in FBS. I think they know what they're missing by not having a longer playoff. And by they, I mean the fans. But they don't know how good we've had it here over the course of the last three weeks. You can still have the meaningful regular season aspect of it and and still have a multiple round playoff. Just ask Susquehanna, ask John Carroll. These are guys who lost one game and stayed home. I'm not sure there's anything else we need to say about it. Oh, indulge me one final point. Forget it, he's rolling. Two of the teams still playing, UW-Whitewater and North Central, got in as at-large teams via Pool C. Three of the teams still playing lost a game this season, and Muhlenberg, the team that is yet to lose, could have flipped places with those aforementioned Riverhawks had it not been for a Dante Leonardo sack in overtime back on September 21st. Every team that still has a chance to win the national championship has been challenged. And amazing as they all looked in the quarterfinals, the role only gets tougher from here. Game ball. Game ball. Game balls. Game balls. Game balls. It's time for game balls. And my game ball is going to UW-Whitewater running back Jared Ware. In a game where the Warhawks were asking their offense to do so many things, the most important was some combination of hang on to the football and keep things moving. And by things, I mean especially the clock. Ware, along with Alex Pete, did that. Ware carried the ball 14 times for 110 yards, averaging 7.9 yards a carry, and scored two touchdowns in the 26-7 win against Mary Harden-Baylor. And the Warhawks held on to the ball for 42 minutes, 45 seconds. Mission accomplished. Being the resident lover of great defense narrowed my choices this week. And as much as I liked what UW-Whitewater did in holding Mary Harden-Baylor to seven points, or what North Central's defense did in bouncing back from giving up 52 last week to surrender just 14 to Delaware Valley, I have to go with the Muhlenberg defense. And it wasn't just the raw number allowing just the one touchdown, the first points the Mules have allowed in three playoff games at Salisbury. It's the way they did it. Salisbury had option looks and then pass plays built into those looks, and the defensive backs didn't bite. Coach Nate Millen talked after the postgame presser about how the defensive scheme was something the coaching staff borrowed from Kirby Smart at Georgia. He talked in the presser about how much Mike Donnelly, the Duke, and for those of you who haven't followed along, he is the uh, longtime Muhlenberg coach who passed the mantle to Millen and, and then passed away uh, a couple of years ago. Mike Donnelly respected Sherman Wood so much and, and talked him up to Nate Millen the first time uh, he had a chance to meet him at a coaching convention. And so Sherman Wood is a Salisbury coach. And to hear him, Wood, praise how well-coached and disciplined the Mules were it was just a nice moment in the postgame. The Mules limited the Seagulls, who scored 83 and 62 points in their first two playoff games, to just eight points, 176 total yards, four of 17 passing, and two of 15 on third and fourth downs. And that's why that unit gets my game ball. And here's Wood talking about Muhlenberg in the postgame. I'm going to tell you something. All the credit to Muhlenberg. 
I mean, those guys, they were, to me, from a perspective, not just the physical part, but it was prepared. Uh, you know, I could see some of the things that we've done all year. Uh, we can go 239, 238, some of the things that our play action, the secondary never moved. You know, it was as if they knew exactly what was going on. There was no, you know, one of the things that we see when people, when the secondary start yo-yoing, there was no yo-yoing at that. And uh, so, therefore, it had to be, we couldn't turn the ball over. We had to be perfect. Uh, we had to execute a little better to make it uh, make it a close game. But our kids kept fighting. Uh, we kept fighting to the end, And uh, but a lot of credit to those guys. Keith, that game on Saturday, obviously, kind of cements what was, uh, I think, previously unthinkable, and that is Muhlenberg hosting a national semifinals. Uh, before last year, before last year's playoff run, the Mules were 2-7 and seven in the history of the Division Three playoffs. This is an amazing surge for that program. Well, it is. I mean, it was also a program that started the season ranked number eight. So it it was unthinkable maybe five years ago, but it was certainly thinkable at the start of this season and and as the season has gone on. But even so, and I'll be the first to admit, I was I was one of the people leading this charge. They had these two shutouts in the first two rounds of the playoffs, but it was against MIT, which came in at seven and two, and then it was at Brockport, came in at eight and two. So it, it, it wasn't exactly the two most dominant playoff teams that they had to beat to get here uh on the other hand Salisbury's offense had been absolutely dominant 83-0 in round one 62-41 in round two against Union which was an unbeaten team this season and this is the the level of competition that jumps uh each round in Muhlenberg you know not you know you talk about Pat sometimes like Mary Harden Baylor's toughest game will be in the first round and then the second round it might actually be like an easier team than they played and it's just wacky like that sometimes out west. Yeah. Muhlenberg is getting this um, progression where the, t- the teams are going to get tougher or have been getting tougher and will continue to get tougher um, every week as they as they go on here and so this was a big jump up in in level of competition to play Salisbury and you know, it turns out it wasn't the Salisbury offense that was so impressive. It was the Muhlenberg defense. And, and it was, a, you know, it was a total team effort. Muhlenberg did a nice job getting up big early in the first half. Receivers running open down the middle, uh, sort of as we predicted on the Friday podcast. Uh, we definitely talked about how uh, that was the, the way Muhlenberg should attack and they should be throwing the ball two out of every three times. And it seemed, it seemed to work early. And then they got into a place where they just were um, trying to nurse that lead, lean on their defense, not give the ball back, give Salisbury too many chances, and uh, and, and it worked out great for them. Nate Milne spent a good amount of time in the postgame news conference talking about how his team prepped for attacking that option. So let's hear a little bit of that. We're fortunate to have played MIT, and one of the games that they had was against Springfield. And so we could kind of take and look. And then Coach David, through his history, when he was the defensive coordinator at Hobart, had Merchant Marine and Springfield in the Liberty League at that time. So he's got um, in the back of his playbook, which is like this, as you guys on defense know, uh, there's a section on triple option, and he, <laughs> he dusted it off and opened it up. And, um, and, and we knew that we were just going to cut it down. Uh, there isn't a defense that Coach David doesn't like. And so he said, all right, we're going to chop it. You know, we, we lined up in, in pretty much one front uh, the entire day. Um, and then we shifted some personnel around as well. Frank usually is our five technique, and same with Dante Leonardo. And so we moved uh, two of our bigger guys inside, and we moved two of our defensive ends outside to play quarterback the entire game. 
and and put some of our playmakers in position. Not that Mickey and Cheddar and those guys aren't playmakers, but you know this guy's all American for a reason. Uh, <laughs> over at the end of the table there, and then just making sure. Uh, and the other one that was great this week um, was we had a quarterback and a fullback who ran it in high school. So that was I can't tell you how how invaluable that was to have somebody who knew the timing, you know what I mean, when, when they're running toss and he knew exactly when to snap the football and do that kind of stuff. <clears throat> so I, I think it was Monday, uh, formalize everything, get our players lined up, ready to go. Tuesday we went in with one play call. <clears throat> Wednesday we made an adjustment off of it. And Thursday all of the little wrinkles as far as coverages and things like that. So really it's just chopping the playbook and saying this is what we're going to do and we have to live with it. The, the preparation was certainly – Something we were worried about. Did we get enough reps at this? Did we get enough reps at that? Um, but I thought they did a great job. And, and it was total team effort. Uh, we had um, individual players that we took. Some, a lot of our second-string offensive players were dedicated to running the option this week. And so we just said, you're number 77. We didn't have anybody replicate that guy. You know, he, he's, he's a dude. Uh, you know what I mean? He's a good player. And uh, But we said, you're 77. You're the guard. You're the center. And, and so we just tagged him and said, this is what you're doing all week long. And really, it was a total buy-in from our players. They took great pride. Our scout team took great pride this week in, in running that offense to as, as good as they could. Scout teams who in the playoffs don't get to suit up don't get to travel uh you're you know you're you're that part of that uh if you're not part of that 58 man travel squad you don't get to go but uh you know he talks about what those guys still contribute and can contribute in december to a team that's uh, going deep into the playoffs yeah i mean i think there's there's two aspects of getting ready quickly for an option team and, and salisbury they had these base option plays but they were able to to run other plays off of it and so the first element is to come up with the defensive scheme and and we'll you know we'll we'll rep we'll rep it during the week and uh try not to put too much in and the other part is getting that that good look from as you're doing the defense you're you're working your first team defense you need to get that that um scout team to give you a something that replicates it and for most teams you can't get that timing or that look down but because Muhlenberg had a couple of guys on their scout team who would run the option in high school they they the timing was pretty good and, and it worked out. I think it, the most impressive part and and you heard Sherman Wood talk about this in the post game is that this team within a matter of three to four days was so super disciplined that um, Salisbury there was one call in the game where it was 14-0, fourth and two. Everybody expects them to run one of their base run plays mm-hmm. and they um, they threw a fade. If just it was fourth and two. And I think it may have been a little a quick play action fake, and then and then they go go deep and take a shot at the end zone. And at that point, um, you know they hit that and they're right back in the game. It's fourteen seven, and um, all's well. Well, there were two DBs back there. The guys they didn't bite at all, and they break up the pass play. And then Salisbury fans and you know people online are like, why didn't they just run it on fourth and two? Well, I think it's a great call because everybody, including everybody online, is expecting them to run it. Uh, Muhlenberg was just super disciplined and and there were times early in the game where Salisbury was was turning the corner on the option and uh, and then Muhlenberg just was was able to string it out and uh, and get the pursuit there and they really did a nice job defensively the assignment gets tougher 
this week because North Central has no weakness on offense. But you, you just can't say enough about uh, you take a team that scored 62 the week before, hold them to eight. You did a pretty nice job. Yeah, final score in that game, 24 to eight. Uh, four of 17 passing. I know you mentioned that uh, Lanham was sacked five times. One of the other things that uh, Millen mentioned that I was uh, really interested in, in and fascinated by was how he talked about he took some of his pieces, some of his guys on defense and moved them around and put them in different places to really make the best use of their abilities against the option. Yeah, I mean, uh, Frankie Feaster and Dante Leonardo, those are the two defensive ends and those are the guys on pass plays who are usually out wide wreaking havoc. They put them inside and they put the normal big guys uh, on the outside And because part of what you want to do with the option is um, you have to commit to the, to the dive back. You have to commit to taking on pulling guards or you know guys moving around on the offensive line. And then you have to have someone committed to the quarterback and someone committed to the pitch man. And it doesn't have to be the same person every time, but the people whose job it is in each defensive look need to know that that's their job because what Salisbury is, is wants you to do is um, commit to something too early, make you make a decision or admit, or make a mistake, and then they either keep it or pitch it and uh, and turn it up. So great season for Salisbury come to, comes to a, uh, a screeching halt, but we knew that was going to happen because you're looking at two undefeated teams, two top 10 teams meeting in uh in this game and, and that's sort of how it goes in the playoffs some somebody everybody but one team is going to finish this thing um you know with some tears at the podium and that was the case on saturday out in naperville illinois it was north central beating delaware valley 31 to 14 keith uh, this is one of these games that was out of control or just about to be out of control at halftime north central goes into the break uh, with a 22-yard field goal in the closing seconds of the first half. They go up 17-0, and uh, Delaware Valley comes out in the second half, and they have no quit. They get back into the game. They made that a 17-14 game, and, and it was um, all North Central in the first half and looked like you know it may may become a runaway. Uh, Delaware Valley hit a hit a big pass play to, uh, to Dan Allen to get them back in at Dan Allen as their big uh, star tight end. Um, and Delaware Valley kind of did this in the first round against Bridgewater where it um, it moved the ball in the first half. It wasn't able to, to get a lot of points off it, came out, ran the ball well in the third quarter, then was able to hit some of those pass plays. So Delaware Valley gets, gets right back in it. You think, oh, okay, now we got a game on our hands, 17-14. And then methodical drive for North Central, eats up a bunch of clocks, scores a touchdown, uh, makes 20, 24, 14, and, uh, and they, they took control. And remember, Delaware Valley's defense was the, the second best defense in the country, aside from Wheaton. Both of those teams are, are in action uh, simultaneously, about you know, eight miles from each other on Saturday, the two great defenses in the country. And so for North Central to put up 31, even though it was a struggle at times and it was you know, in some ways um, – you know, it seems like a pedestrian number coming off 59 against Mount Union the week before, but it was a really nice offensive game from North Central. Got nine catches from freshman wide receiver D'Angelo Hardy. Greenfield was back. Andrew Kaminsky, best best receiver or leading receiver in the country at the very least. And, of course, Brock Rudder, a, uh, a you know star quarterback guy who's been a starter for four years and, and may well win the Gallardi Trophy. Uh, leading that offense so I and a great offensive line too I don't think they have any offensive weaknesses and it, it was you know a 
for them, it, points weren't yardage wasn't necessarily easy to come by because Delvao so great, great defensively. You got the Nobile brothers coming at you. You have uh, you know great linebackers and a good secondary, and it was uh, just a really methodical win, I thought, for North Central. Here's uh, Coach Jeff Thorne's take on it. Thrilled to continue to play, um, moving on to the semifinals for the second time in program history and uh, over a really, really quality, fantastic Delaware Valley team. Uh, their defense was everything it was cracked up to be. Their front seven was extremely stout. Uh, so, so it was difficult to get our running game going. Brock was fantastic as he, as he always is. Uh, 23 out of 33 you know, against a team like that in the semifinals. Um, two touchdown passes. Just a fantastic performance again, Ethan. You know, it's really it was tough sledding in the running game. With 28 carries for 93 yards, allowed us to possess the football, which is a big part of what we're trying to do. Uh, keep the ball out of the other team's hands. Uh, really help our defense out, and we had to think 34 minutes of of possession time. So uh, that that really played into the outcome of the game. And I thought our defense was fantastic this week. You know, much maligned after last week's first half made some adjustments, and then really that second half last week and throughout this game, you know, save a couple drives during the third quarter. Our defense was fantastic, and uh, we're going to need that to continue. And, Pat, in that same press conference, there is a shout-out to you or to a, a comment that you made to Coach Thorne after the Mountain Union game last week, which is a, f- a fair point that um, the last time, was it the last couple times a team had beaten uh, Mountain Union, turned around and lost the, the next week, or a team had won at Mount Union in the playoffs? Was that the stat you're, you're quoting? Yeah, it is uh, the last two times that a team had won at Mount Union in the playoffs. They went on to lose the next game. I think I even asked that in the question that we used on uh, in the interview on Pod 264. Right, I remember hearing it uh, very briefly because it is a PLU reference and you don't get a whole lot of those uh, anymore. The um, so, so the point, though, of bringing that up is, is that North Central – was the toast of D3 for, you know, however long after round two, uh, you know, maybe smelling itself a little bit and to be able to dial it back, get back to business and say, okay, now we, now we have to get ready for one of the better defenses in the country again, after we just did that last week. Um, and to not be like, Oh, we, we hung 59. I'm not, who's this piddly little team from the East that we never heard of before, you know, to really get back to, 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 basics and and um remember that you haven't won the national championship yet and you got a couple more weeks left uh to if you want to do that was um admirable you know it's not anything that any other team across the country wouldn't be trying to do in the same situation it's not like super innovative but it's a hard thing to do to to get your whole teams emotionally on the same page to to not think they're too good for the team they're about to play or to not um, be too proud of what they've accomplished in the past to stay in the present. And as coaches love to say, go one and know every week down in Belton, Texas, the rematch of UW whitewater and Mary Harden Baylor went the same way that five of the previous six did in the fact that uh, whitewater beat Mary Harden Baylor 26 to seven Keith in a game that took just two hours and 22 minutes to complete. Uh, and of that time, uh, Mary Harden Baylor never really seemed to have the ball, on offense, and uh, Whitewater just uh, pounded it right at them. Yeah, Mary Harden Baylor did not have the ball very much in this one. It wasn't just uh, perception. And that's Whitewater's plan, but it doesn't always work to perfection, especially against a team uh, as talented as Mary Harden Baylor. I think we identified, though, a little bit 
the week before in some of the previous podcasts. And and if you follow some of the the more well-known Mary Harden Baylor fans on Twitter who interact with us, I think they would agree that that the offense wasn't as explosive as it was because in previous years, a lot of years when, you know, if the passing game broke down or if it just wasn't a, a great um, passing game period, although I think they've, you know, over the past whatever five years have had a lot more uh, wide receiver weapons than the early Mary Harden Baylor teams had. They could always just lean on Markeith Miller to to figure out how to get a first down. And uh, you know the first championship year, Blake Jackson bailed them out of a lot of plays. The quarterback had was you know their best runner in in a lot of ways, and and they didn't have that great backfield this year. And, and certainly their the quarterback was the the guy who led them to the championship last season. And they did what they do a lot of seasons, which is kind of build up to the to the postseason at quarterback and use a bunch of different players. Um, but they ran into a team that, unbeknownst to me until reading some of this stuff um, in the pregame and postgame, Whitewater was really ticked off about losing to Mary Harden-Baylor last year um, when they had reached the semifinals again and, and had uh, dreams, I think, of getting to the Stag Bowl with that team. Uh, four turnovers in that one and the uh, the big punt return, which, uh, you know, these are things that were like huge at the time that you forget about over the course of a year. Uh, but Whitewater hadn't forgotten about it. And uh, they internalized that one and played really their perfect game on on um, Saturday. 358 yards of offense to 140 for Mary Harden Baylor, uh, negative three yards rushing for UMHB, 239 for Whitewater. I mean, though. Pretty much, that's that's all you need to know stat-wise um, when you talk about pounding the rock, playing Whitewater-style football, 239 to negative three. And then, Pat, you mentioned the uh, the time of possession, 42-45 for Whitewater, just 17 minutes and 50 seconds of uh, holding the ball for Mary Harden-Baylor. So that was reality, not just perception. Well, let's hear from Kevin Bullis on how important it was to control the clock. It was vital. I mean, offensively, when I mean, you look at the weapons they have offensively, I mean, goodness gracious, that we felt controlling the clock was going to be huge. That first quarter, I was like giddy like a little kid. I mean, you know, I think our defense was on the field just, I mean, seriously, I don't know if it was four minutes in that first quarter. And I was, that to me was um, huge. And if we can continue, I knew at that point, if we could continue to do that, and minimize the opportunities for Mary Harden Baylor's offense. I mean, that quarterback can slam ball now. Holy buckets. And um, we just got to be able to minimize those opportunities. Keith, you mentioned the negative yardage rushing, minus three yards rushing, which is, you know, nearly impossible to believe about a, a Mary Harden Baylor team. And uh, Hammock was 16 of 28 passing, but for only 143 yards, which meant that they got 140 yards on the afternoon, here's Whitewater defensive back Nate Trannell to talk about how that came about. Well, I think it's just, you know, what we've been practicing this stuff since day one of fall camp. And uh, we've came out of the year confident in what we got to do. And um, this week of practice, we had a great week. And it's just sticking to our process, knowing exactly what we have to do, where our eyes need to be, what the right route concepts, anything like that. So we just know that <clears throat> if we were able to go and just keep them in front of us, don't let them get behind us. Um, we should be able to run with them. I mean, that was the biggest thing was don't let any deep balls, don't give up the big plays because um, that's what they, they can score very easily on those, and that's what they have done all year. So we pride ourselves in being the best DB crew in the nation. Um, that's kind of what our mindset is. Like, nobody can beat us. 
Uh, so that's just kind of what we had going in this game, and I think we had a really good plan against them. Another good game plan on the defensive side will be needed coming up this week with St. John's coming to town in the national semifinals. Keith, we talked about the time of possession. We talked about the uh, the great job that the Whitewater running game did. Max Myler, 10 of 12 passing for 119 yards, didn't make too many mistakes on offense. Anything else you want to add from this game? Look, all those things go hand in hand, Pat. The great defensive game plan, uh, the quarterback not contributing any turnovers, and then that that rushing attack, not to continually pat ourselves on the back, but this is just to remind you that if you listen to the Monday podcast, you should also listen to the Friday podcast, especially if you're a fan of one team and all of a sudden you really need to get to know this other team that you're about to play um, really quickly. We talked about this on, on, uh, on Friday, Pat, about how Whitewater has this three-headed rushing attack with Jared Ware, Alex Pete, Ronnie Ponick. They'll split the carries between the guys. Saturday was Jared Ware's day, 14 for 110, 7.9 per carry and the two touchdowns. Alex Pete got 19 carries, including a bunch on that first drive that uh, that Coach Bullis talked about. He was 19 for 76, and Ronnie Ponick, the third back of the three, gets 11 carries. And uh, I think you don't have to worry about your guys wearing down. If your whole game plan is to put together long drives, keep the other offense off the field, it works a lot better when you have – a great offensive line in three guys who can tote the rock. Is there another game from Saturday we should talk about? Yeah, I mean, this is like um, not bait and switch, but but like burying the um, the thing that people want, so they have to go to that. It's like those those. Uh, no, I never want to compare us to those websites where you where you open it up and it's like you have to go through fifty slides to get to the payoff. Uh, yes, it's not quite like that because people would want to listen to all these. Everything and this, all the first 45 minutes of the podcast were really great, too. Right? No, anyone getting the slideshow thing? If you came to hear about the, the St. John's Wheaton game, um, here you are. Thanks for not fast forwarding. And, um, what the hell? I mean, what an amazing finish! Craziness, right? So, first off, you know, just kind of backtracking just a moment, right? This was a 21 to 7 game at the half. And, you know, Gary Fashing knew that this was not going to be the way it was going to end. Even when we were up 21-7 at halftime, I told our guys this game's not over because they're going to mount a comeback. Uh, and uh, they certainly did. Uh, fortunately, I, I, I'm so proud of our football team because uh, we were on our heels a little bit in that second half, but we never gave up. And, and uh, Jackson made some great plays, uh, individual plays that, that – uh, got us back on the scoreboard in the second half, and, th and those were really key. And then we made just enough plays on defense. And had a little luck on our side at the end there, maybe with a, with a missed extra point. But uh, again, I can't uh, say enough about our, our players and the way they've prepared uh, to get to this point. And um, uh, to be one of the final four teams, we're obviously excited and looking forward to next week. I mean, I assume that if you're listening to this podcast, you know that uh, St. John's defeated Wheaton by the score of 34 to 33. Crazy fourth quarter in which the teams combined for uh, just about half of their points. You know, uh, Wheaton had missed a uh, missed a, a standard PAT, and then of course went on to twice miss a long PAT. Something that wouldn't have even come up except for the fact, oh, let's see, it's just like, you know, Blake Patrick with the deep bomb from Erdman uh, over the middle puts uh, St. John's on top at the beginning of the fourth quarter. Extra point is blocked. 
Uh, Wheaton comes back, drives 73 yards on eight plays. Bad snap on the extra point, and the two-point conversion does not uh, go anywhere. So it's tied at 27 apiece. St. John's comes right back down, 215 later, very next possession. Uh, Erdman finds Kemper for a touchdown. They go up 34-27, and Wheaton just pounds it right back at them. And although people probably know what happened next, I think we're obliged to talk about it anyway. Jake Hibben, the the starting center, they put him in the backfield in a uh, uh, in a refrigerator Perry throwback, for lack of a better term, right? And he plows ahead on uh, a handful of carries, and then finally gets himself into the end zone. And then, as you heard, uh, Doug Rothschild, the Wheaton color analyst. Back at the beginning of the podcast, I mentioned he spiked the ball, and that is an automatic unsportsmanlike conduct penalty, and the rest is two attempts at that uh, extra point, which were both missed. So much to unpack from this game, Pat. Not just the ending, but the ending, obviously, the most, um, I don't know, stunning moment of these playoffs so far, and this is a playoffs that uh, included a... 68-65 game with that went to three overtimes, yeah. a 38-37 overtime game, Central beating Oshkosh in the first round, and then, of course, included that desperation heave. I guess not desperation heave. The last second pass uh, at Mount Union last week. So there's been plenty of great finishes so far in these playoffs, and this was uh, as unexpected and uh, wacky, yeah. I guess for lack of a better word, as as any of them. Let's take it back to the minute 14 left. Wheaton is in the midst of this 14-play drive to tie the game or, or what we thought would be a drive that, that would tie the game or give them a chance to tie or give them a chance to go for two. They were playing uh, at home. They could have, um, especially after having the, the previous mishap uh, with the snap, you know, maybe they decide to go for two. They get to a fourth and one on the St. John's nine. Now, none of this even happens if they if they don't give it to Hibben with uh, a minute 14 left, fourth and one. And Hibben is the – generally he's a center. He's a senior. Where's number 61? They line him up in the backfield. And uh, Rusty Lindsay and Doug Rothschild, had, they had the name for the package uh, where, where Hibben is the fullback. And um, I can't, it's, not, it's not coming to me now. It wasn't Jumbo, but it's basically like some name that, that says, all right, this is a running back and a center in the backfield as a fullback. So they line up in the eye. Hibben gets five yards on fourth and one. If he gets stopped there, the game's over. So he gets five on fourth and one, uh, sets him up first and goal at the four. He gets two. He gets one. Looked like he might have been in on the second and goal. Uh-huh. They, they, uh, he doesn't – He doesn't. Um, they, they really give it to him again. So they've given, given it to the center four straight times. He pounds it through on third and goal. You can't blame the guy for being excited. One, he's a center. How often does he score a touchdown? Two, this is the essentially with nine seconds left. The clock is running. Wheaton is out of timeouts. Punches it in. This is essentially the the game tying touchdown that's going to send potentially send Wheaton to the final four. Spikes the ball. The the officials, as we've been informed by our in house officials expert, are we allowed to out Frank as a <laughs> As a rules maven, that the officials don't have an they don't that's not a judgment call. They have to call that. Okay, so uh, unsportsmanlike conduct pushes the kick back to um, to uh, the eighteen is where the snap is. Um, so it ends up being a what eighteen seventeen thirty five yard kick. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And so instead of a, a normal extra point, 35-yard kick, misses the first one. And that, you guys all know that's that, that happened. But do you know that there's a penalty, right? St. John's roughs the kicker. So Wheaton is now – we think Wheaton is going to get that short opportunity to kick uh, to kick it again. Maybe they'll change their mind, decide to go for two after they've missed the first one. But Wheaton also had a substitution infraction. Penalties were offsetting, so it's still a 35-yard attempt. Uh, Griffin Bowes misses the kick again. And 34-33 is how it goes in the books. And for a Wheaton program, I mean, maybe we can talk about, I'll let you talk and then you could, we could talk about this after, but this might've been the best chance that, that Wheaton's had and to get so close and to lose in such excruciating fashion really, really has to hurt. Well, let's hear from Jackson Erdman, who was on the sidelines, obviously watching all of this unfold. Here was his take, seeing it develop in front of him. A lot of emotions. Oh. You know, the whole time I'm watching the clock, thinking like, you know, always just trying to think worst case scenario, you know, like we score, okay, we want to have a plan for offense, whether what we're going to do, so watching that clock, seeing how much time we get, see them running the ball, so we know they're running it down, they don't want to get it again. So, you know, just, just you know, like, when we knew it was going to come down to defense at the end, like not even going to overtime, or, um, you know, maybe they wouldn't go for two, anyway, so just having the defenses back, training them on, you know. If it wasn't for Erdman, obviously, uh, there would not have been a need for Wheaton to make a uh, last-minute drive to try to tie that game. Yeah, Pat, a couple of amazing things in this game are overshadowed by the way it ended. One was that um, that Gary Flashing had alluded to, the, the 21-7 halftime lead. Wheaton scored four touchdowns in the second half um, and stormed back into this thing to even make it as close as it was. And then the performance of Jackson Erdman. We heard all week about how great the Wheaton defense was. And in the run game, that defense was amazing. Uh, St. John's negative 12 rushing yards on 12 tries. You don't have to be a math whiz to know that's uh, minus one yards per carry. Uh, so rushing, not their, not their best uh, option. Erdman, though, 28 to 41, 407 yards passing and five touchdowns to the air. Uh, no interceptions, which are um, that actually one interception but that's i mean that stat may be as key as the 407 yards but i i think the the big thing was they just hit big play after big play and so as stout as the wheaton defense was you saw these playmakers and again we've said this several times now on the pod where these were guys who were sort of unknown commodities at the beginning of the season well now you know who ravi austin and blake patrick and tj hodge are these are guys who catch 69 yard touchdown passes uh, early in this game. So the, the touchdowns for St. John's are 20 yard pass to Ravi Austin, 69 to Blake Patrick, 27 to Austin in the second quarter, 54 to Patrick in the fourth. And then uh, Jack Kemper caught a 27 yarder in the fourth quarter as well. So this was a game where St. John's puts it on Erdman's shoulders and uh, their, their star quarterback who also may repeat as the Gallardi Trophy winner at, at the time we're recording this, we don't know if it's going to be Rudder or or um, Erdman. And if it was the one somebody besides one of those two guys, it would be stunning, um, even though there are, there are 12 great candidates uh, up for it. I, they put it on their best player's shoulder, and they he, he brought them through uh, or at least got them to the point where they had the lead that and Wheaton needed to drive the tie. And then a little thing, Pat, could you explain this? Because you see the term floating around Twitter, and unless you ha- have a deep, deep knowledge right. of Minnesota D3 history, tell us what Johnny Magic is. Good question. Um, so Johnny Magic, uh, of course, is something we actually really haven't talked about so much lately. It, it kind of, uh, it kind of, you could almost say, 
that Johnny Magic kind of died and went dormant in like 2005. But 2003, of course, this is the year that uh, St. John's wins the national championship, right? They uh, they beat Mountain Union in the Stag Bowl in Salem uh, earlier that season. You know, they needed a, uh, a, a, a late field goal to win at St. Thomas. They needed a, a 35-yard field goal with eight seconds left to win that game to get uh, John Gilardi to his uh, 408th career win. And then he won 409 the next week against Bethel, uh, getting past uh, the uh, record that had previously been held by Eddie Robinson of Grambling State. And, you know, and then they they kind of run through the playoffs, but uh, and, and beat St. John's 24 to six. There have been like moments and multiple moments in which St. John's is just kind of one on crazy plays at the end, uh, you know, some of those games against Concordia Moorhead in that era where, you know, it's like a, a deep ball on the final play of the game that they go on to win that game, uh, win games like that. It's just, um, there's this like feeling around the program that every once in a while something crazy is, is going to happen and they're going to, you know, get themselves into the playoffs because of that or advance in the playoffs because of that. You can think back to um, last year against St. Thomas, right? This is a game that was close until, uh, you know, the ball was fumbled on the one-yard line. Max Jackson, the safety, takes it back and runs it back 99 yards to uh, basically have a 14-point swing, and they end up winning that game 40-20. to uh, there's just a lot of these little things over the years, and I'm probably not doing a great job of describing it, but that is how it is viewed. And I think there's a there's a belief that it's a real thing. And, you know, when you have that little extra bit of confidence that something crazy just might happen to, you know, to be on your side, um, you just think of the closing minutes of the game against Aurora, for that matter. They come back right with the... Uh, the late touchdowns and win that game. I don't know. It's something about something. I did a poor job of describing describing that. No, it was. I mean, it's fine. It, it brought us all up to speed. Isn't it crazy that St. John's one dropped pass, one turnover late in the game? They trailed Aurora by nine, and we thought for a minute, you know, you could probably dig up some old tweets um, that this was going to be the upset of the uh, the playoffs yeah. here in the first round. Uh, Erdman leads them, leads the team to two touchdown drives, and uh, you know in the final eight and a half minutes, and St. John's moves on. St. John's handles Chapman in round two, uh, out in California. They had to go on the road for that one, and then uh, and then to go to Wheaton and win, I think, is a pretty big deal. And and I don't know what the, you know, if we had done a batch of predictions just nationally across the country, would you say like seventy percent of people thought Wheaton was going to win this one? Uh, sure. Let's go with that. Oh, okay. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I just don't think that for the for the again, St. John's top five program uh, for for much of the year, start of the season, ranked number three, has Erdman crushed St. Thomas in the middle of, in the middle of the season, um, and then then they stumbled with the Concordia Moorhead game, and that's where they they fell a little bit in the rankings. But I think they're still the team they were all season, and, and I was a little surprised that. Um, that people didn't give them more of a chance. On the flip side, for for Wheaton, this is as good a chance as they were going to get. Wheaton's been a a great program, you know, eight wins minimum, I think, um, every season and, and in the playoffs frequently. The CCIW, because it's a 
a strong conference, but it's in their North region. A lot of times a CCIW champion would eventually have to go through Mount Union. This time, Mount Union's completely on the other side of the bracket from Wheaton. Um, North, Wheaton the team that Wheaton's beaten beats Mount Union, knocks them out of the postseason. And though, even though you have Mary Harden, Baylor, and Whitewater and St. John still on the side, I think a lot of people going into this week thought this was a chance for Wheaton to get through to the Stag Bowl. And there were even people who thought there may be a, a little brass bell rematch in, uh, in Shenandoah, Texas, between Wheaton and North Central. And, and that is no longer possible because of the way that that game finished, but also because of the way St. John's played from the first snap to build that 21-7 lead and to, to be in position to force Wheaton to have to drive the field, to have to kick the game-tying extra point. That, of course, uh, was a miss. Yeah, what Keith mentioned a moment ago, uh, Greg Thomas shared in our uh, internal communications channels uh, something that I'm um, not going to go full bedtime story on this, although it was nice to hear that people actually found that enjoyable slash amusing rather than embarrassing for me. I appreciate that. Here's what Greg had to say, though, and I, I can't emulate Greg's voice, so I'm just going to say it. I've been thinking about Wheaton since their game ended Saturday. This was supposed to be it for them. Their best team ever somehow not only avoided Mount Union in their quadrant, but in their half of the bracket. Then Mount Union is eliminated before Wheaton has to deal with them. They've owned North Central in the Rudder era, so they'd have to have confidence against them. UMHB got knocked out, so they were set to host a semifinal. Wheaton had a singular team in their history right in the middle of a singular postseason, at least in the last 25 years of this tournament. Every star aligned, and then they lose the way that they lost. They'll probably never, ever get another look at the title the way they had this year. The players, I think, will get over it. The coaches on that staff that have been living with the Mount Union, UW-Whitewater ceiling for the last 15 to 20 years know that this was it. That's going to be raw for them forever. Yeah, I mean, Greg says that a lot better than I did or could have. Um, I wonder, I wouldn't be surprised if there, if there are some people at Wheaton who take issue with parts of it in that, you know, this team may well be back, especially if North Central breaks through to, um, to Shenandoah and they win or they make a stag bowl. I think Wheaton can see itself, can look at its part, its, you know, rival and say, well, if they can get there, we can certainly get there. Um, but they, they, this was a great chance. You know, this may not be the best Wheaton team ever, um, but it's certainly one that had had a path, that had the talent to get it done and uh, and really was in position until uh, it just got the, the double gut punch at the end of that game. I mean, that could not have been a more exciting finish the way their uh, score and tie that one up and then for them to lose it the way they lost it. Um, it is will be tough for Wheaton folks all around. And it, and it may be the last run. It's always the last run for um, for a group, right? Because you never have the same team twice. You'll always lose some seniors, bring in some new freshmen, and people move into different roles. But the, the, the team significantly may look different next season. Well, and so we had two coaches – uh, or two teams lose on Saturday with coaches who, you know, at some point have got to be thinking about the end of their career, right? Is Does Pete Fredenberg come back for 2020? Does uh, Mike Swider come back for 2020? These are guys who, you know, might choose to hang it up this offseason. Look, I mean, all, a lot of the guys coaching on, on um, Saturday built their programs from either scratch in the in case of, of Pete Fredenberg at Mary Harden-Baylor. Program started in 1998. It was, uh, you know, the institution had 
had gone co-ed and adding football. Of course, in Texas was a big deal. Uh, Mike Swider has built Wheaton football to be a, a nationally known name. Um, and not just Wheaton, you know, Wheaton's good at other sports and Wheaton is a, a known school, especially in, uh, in, in theology circles and in other uh, Christian studies, but it's uh, the football program in D3. I mean, you know, not only is it a, a program that puts out every now and again, like a really great player, put a player in the NFL, um, spawned other coaches. Randolph Macon's program is led by a Wheaton graduate. Um, it's just been a consistently good program. And, you know, we've learned this because we've done this long enough. All the greats eventually have to hang it up. You know, we, we were fortunate enough to know uh, John Gallardi and Frosty Westering and, and Larry Karras in, in their prime or in their era. And a lot of the other great coaches uh, who, who've retired over the years, whether it be, you know, um, he's, you know, coach from, from Lycoming or from um, Wash U, like it doesn't have to be necessarily a national championship type, type thing, but a lot of guys, you know, Rich Lackner, guys like that, like give their life to a program. And, and, you know, um, we, we were hit so hard when, when Mike Dress and, uh, and Jamar Graf passed away the past couple of years too. So, I mean, the, none of this is forever. And if, if, uh, Pete Fredenberg and, and, or Mike Swider are able to walk away, you know, coach Fredenberg gets to walk away with the knowledge that he's built a national championship program. He can look at that stadium on campus and say, I didn't build that. I didn't build that, but I built that, you know, um, and the pictures all around that stadium are all uh, of great moments in Mary Harden Baylor uh, football history. And, and for Mike Swider at Wheaton, you know, I'm sure he would say something like, you know, I didn't, I don't do this just to win championships, but, a, but, a, you know, I'm a competitive person and we want to win. Um, it, it would, it would have been nice if you if you know, you're going to retire, or you feel like you might retire or, maybe we're just speculating but it would be nice it would have been nice to take to go out uh, on top or at least you know keep on playing for another week or two now's the time on sprockets where we dance that is the time of the podcast where we go to twitter we put the call out on sundays when we're getting ready to record this monday version of the podcast this tweet comes from at Sagatag Sam, who said, Before the quarterfinals, Wheaton was believed by some to be the most balanced and complete team left in the tournament. Who assumes that distinction now that Wheaton is out? And I think I would probably agree with the assessment. I think we went back to how um, how we ranked teams last week in terms of offense and defense. I think Wheaton fairly high in offense and at the top of the defense. I think the question is who's the most balanced team left out of the four. Yeah, I'd say Muhlenberg in in terms of um, a team that can lean on its defense that has weapons on offense. You know, we spent a good portion of earlier in this podcast talking a lot about the Muhlenberg defense, but uh, Nakowski's a great quarterback. Uh, Ryan Curtis, All American tight end. They've got um, some other weapons, Mitch Daniel and guys like that, where. Um, you know, they can they can attack the middle of the field. They can go. They don't really have like the elite um, athletes on the perimeter. Like, you know, the the receivers at St. John's, when you uh, watch that game on Saturday, you'll see, wow, these guys are, you know, they're they're maybe not super experienced, but they're really great athletes. I think, um, you know, Muhlenberg is, is a little bit more um, guys who are getting it done with uh, with guile and quickness. 
not necessarily like amazing athleticism, but Ryan Curtis as a tight end, and they use him as an H back. They'll um, they some keep him in the block, throw screens to him, hand the ball off to him, whatever they need to do. He I mean, he's a great athlete. Um, but as a team, as far as balance goes, I mean, I think offense, defense, Muhlenberg has it. But Muhlenberg, you could argue that you take Muhlenberg and put him on this other side of the bracket where you have to go through, you know, your Mary Harden Baylors and your Wheatons and your and Whitewater and St. John's. Maybe they wouldn't fare as well. I don't know that for a fact, but I think Whitewater struggles a little bit on offense, and clearly they are not going to put the ball in their, in their quarterback's hands and make them win it. St. John's a complete opposite. They're going to put the ball in their quarterback's hands and make them win it. And, the, and St. John's has played good defense, but I don't think they have the, the running game to call them the most balanced team left. And North Central, North certainly Central. offensively super balanced, but a defense that gave up uh, 59 points two weeks ago. I don't know how you can call that the most balanced team left. Um, so the, the, the question is most balanced. I say Muhlenberg, if you say the most talent might be one of the other three teams. Um, but hopefully that's the answer that somebody was, uh, was hoping for, uh, North central in terms of total defense on the course of the season now, or at least yes, through the 13 games uh, of the season is ranked 36th in total defense, having allowed just a little bit under, 295 yards of of opposing total offense that I made that sound much more difficult than it needed to be and I'm trying to look up because I had been uh, I'd been told a number on Muhlenberg where Muhlenberg is ranked 44th coming into the week in terms of total offense so that's still 425.2 yards a game and that's not even in the top 10 percent of division three but obviously uh, a pretty good number there yeah we're we're in an, an offensive renaissance perhaps or or maybe we're 10 years into it at this point but yeah 400 yards a game is sort of not still better than average but it's uh you know you got guys throwing for 400 yards at this rate um and especially across d3 i i, th- I think you could frame that question so many ways though the most talent left the most uh experience i mean the thing i like about this bracket and where we are now is that you're going to get one team in Whitewater and St. John's that has the championship pedigree, that's been a, a, a great program for 10, 15, 20, 40, 50 years, however far you want to go back into St. John's history. You got that draw on one side of the bracket and the fact that it's not uh, the same old, same old. It's not Mountain Union. It's not Mary Harden Baylor. And then you got this completely fresh group on the other side. Um, Muhlenberg's been a winning program and North Central's been knocking on the door for years. But one of those two teams is going to get to the stag bowl. And it's so new to them, or it will be so new to them, that that uh, these guys don't even necessarily know how to run the week. You can certainly put Muhlenberg coach Nate Millen on that list. Here is his take on what his team might have to go through this week. I, I think it'll be a really cool week on our campus. I'm not sure what it'll entail. Um, and it could be an awkward week. Um, I have no idea what our practice schedule will be. It's finals week. So this is something we were, and, and we hate to put the cart in front of the horse, um, but I was talking to our dean of students and our dean of faculty last week saying, hey, if we win, what do we do? You know, we've, And so I don't know if there's a right or a wrong answer here because we've never had to do this. Maybe I'll call Mount Union and, and Mary Harden Baylor, who seem to be here every single year, um, and ask them what they do during finals. Um, because that's uh, these these young men again at Muhlenberg College, 
Uh, our SAT score is is phenomenal to get in. Our team GPA is phenomenal. Our team GPA is 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 better than the average male at Muhlenberg College. So these guys are true student athletes uh, up here. Um, Spence's uh, little bigger brother uh, Max was the Centennial Conference Student Athlete of the Year, and uh, and these guys just these guys just get it done. Um, and so we'll find a way, like we always do. But I don't know what'll entail. This was D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast, number 266, season 13, episode 29, released on December 9th, 2019. Thanks for listening, and keep an eye on the rest of our coverage this week. If you like our podcast, please consider giving it a rating in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get podcasts. That will help other football fans find it, and you can leave comments for us on the blog page. You can also reach us to talk more about Division Three football on Twitter using the D3FB hashtag. I'm at D3Football, and Keith is at D3Keith. We have a message board devoted to Division Three sports. Did you know? Join the conversation by registering to post at D3Boards.com. Also, you can follow D3Football.com on Facebook. The executive producer of the Around the Nation podcast is Pat Coleman. Production assistance provided by Dave McHugh. Our theme music and a lot of the other music we use in this podcast is by DJ Mentos, whom you can find at DJMentos.com. Also, on Spotify. We used audio from a lot of different places around the internet on this podcast. So special thanks to the folks who posted their post-game news conferences at Mary Harden Baylor, at Salisbury, at Wheaton, and at North Central. We definitely uh, could not have had nearly as complete a podcast without you guys. Also thanks to the Bear 660 in St. Cloud. I mean, we used the clip, but we got it from the St. John's video. So thank you both. And uh, so thanks to uh, everybody for their time and help on this edition of our show. And, of course, thanks to the creator of Around the Nation on D3Football.com and my co-host, Keith McMillan. Don't let me keep you awake. If you need to fall asleep on the couch, just do it. We're done with the podcast, so you can actually fall asleep, and I won't have a problem. Yeah, I prefer to make it up to bed, but, you know, we'll see how that goes. I'm sorry I don't have a bedtime story to tell you. That's it. That's the bring everything full circle. There'll be a time to uh, to look at all this stuff and to reflect, but now's not the time.